Remain standing for our gospel lesson from Luke 1. I'll read verses 26 to 38 from the ESV this morning. Pay attention. This is the gospel of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the, virgin's Mary, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, bless the reading and hearing of your word, of your truth that you've established And give us hearts and minds to hear and to see and to believe and then to do according to what it says. Uh, We pray that all of our meditations today would be pleasing to you and that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you and that they would glorify your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Excuse me. Today's gospel lesson is often referred to as the Annunciation because in this text, Gabriel, the angel, announces the incarnation, the gospel. But This passage doesn't only record the announcement of the first Christmas. It also records the response of the first Christian, we might say. Of course, all the saints in the Old Covenant trusted in the coming Messiah. And so, in a sense, every believer from Adam onward was a Christian insofar as they were looking ahead to the coming Christ. But Mary is the first person person in history to hear and respond 
to the message of Christmas. The first person to respond with faith in the specific Christian message about the incarnation of God's Son. Mary's the first Christian to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first to believe the glad tidings of Christmas announced to her nine months earlier before he was born, before the child was born. But the message of Christmas, going all the way back to the conception, to the incarnation of Christ, the message of Christmas is the message of the gospel. It's not, it's not pre-gospel, it is the gospel. The incarnation of God, we can say, is the gospel. And so the announcement of God's becoming flesh, His incarnation, is an announcement of the good news, an announcement of salvation. God's entrance into our history, into our world that He created, His, his entrance into this cosmos his becoming one with us, with our flesh. His becoming one with our groaning. All of this is the gospel. So to understand the message of Christmas, we must take note of who this message is initially sent to, given to, proclaimed to. God doesn't announce it to the strong and wise. He doesn't send Gabriel to Judea, the southern kingdom of Judah, to the heartland where all, most of the action had happened in the Old Testament, where God's activity was centered, uh, where everyone who was anyone lived. He doesn't send Gabriel to Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea, which, is where, which was the center of religious and political activity. The angel bypassed Judea for Galilee. He bypassed the metropolis of Jerusalem for the backwater village of Nazareth. He bypassed all the important people of status in Israel and came instead to a poor young virgin in Galilee and in Nazareth no less. <clears throat> From all standard external indicators, Mary's life was set to be quite ordinary. Extremely ordinary. Her destiny, so it appeared, was to marry a man who was as poor as she was, give birth to several poor children, never see much of the world, and then to die, a uh, nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Many, many had lived that life. Many she knew lived that life. As we probe the, the beautiful narrative of the Annunciation, we mustn't miss that the greatest news ever proclaimed to anyone ever, the greatest news ever proclaimed to God's people, 
came to the lowliest of its members, to a female of low status. Mary would later say in her song, the Magnificat, as we call it, down in verses 46 to 48. If you have your Bibles open to Luke 1, she says there, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Martin Luther remarked on this passage, quote, God might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter who was fair, rich, clad in gold embroidered raiment and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting, but God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town, end quote. The announcement of the incarnation teaches us something very, very important about the gospel. The Lord comes to needy people, to those who know their destitution, those who know their dependence on the Lord in every way, to those who realize that they can't make it without God, to those who acknowledge their spiritual deficiency. Christmas, the incarnation, the gospel, salvation, is not for the proud, it's not for the self-sufficient, but for the lowly, for the poor in spirit. So the gospel was first announced to Mary. When we come back to this text in two weeks, we'll consider Mary's response to the gospel. And the question we'll explore then is, how should I respond to this message? How should I respond to Gabriel's gospel proclamation? And we'll learn from Mary there. But this week, I'm, I'm really just going to lead an extended meditation, really, on the significance of the incarnation, drawing from a, really just a word or two from this passage that we read. And the question we're going to ask and try to explore today is what does it mean that the Most High has been made low? In fact, if, if I were retitling the sermon in the bulletin, I would say something like, the, the Most High has become the most low. Let's get the angel's announcement before us again. Verses 26 to 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we call the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of, the king, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So what's Gabriel's message here? It's that the Most High is becoming the most low. The eternal Son of the Most High is about to humble himself by taking the form of a, a slave, the form of a bondservant. 
Mary calls herself a bondservant twice in Luke 1. Once in the passage that we read the, before the sermon, and then once again in her song, the Magnificat, down in verses 46 and following. In Philippians 2, in the song known as the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ, Paul says that Jesus Christ, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own ad- advantage, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a bondservant or slave, being made in human likeness. So like mother, like son, the Most High is about to become the Most low in a very real way and really he's being like his father as well he when we see the son we see the father but he's a bond servant and that's the same thing mary calls herself the creator of humanity will become human the uncreated power that holds the universe together that created the universe and holds it together, that uncreated power will soon enter the, that universe as a baby, as the seed of a woman. The Shepherd's Carol by William Billings contains these words, Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable. See your God extended on the straw. So what does it mean that the most high has become the most low? It means three things. And we're going to reflect on these three things today. It means, number one, that God is higher than we thought. We need to remember that God is higher than we tend to think. Number two, we are lower than we thought. And number three, God is more loving than we thought. Number one, God is higher than we thought. God is higher than than you imagine. It's not the case that God is too great to become a part of our weakness. Too high to become low. Now, every religion and philosophy other than the Christian faith believes that God is too lofty to become human. Actually, though, we know of God's highness precisely because of his ability and desire to become so low. It reveals to us something about his greatness. To reject the possibility of the incarnation because it's philosophically impossible, is to reject the greatness of God. True lowness never has the power in itself to become high or or, or great. But true greatness can take on lowness. It can become low without losing its greatness. The essence of true greatness is its ability to take on, identify with, lowness. Think about it. Three-dimensional objects can have the the characteristics of two-dimensional shapes. But two-dimensional shapes can never have the glory and the greatness 
of three-dimensional objects. For example, a pyramid has the characteristics of a two-dimensional triangle on each of its sides. But a two-dimensional triangle in itself does not contain the greatness of a pyramid. When you talk to or play with your, your dog, you can become doggish. You know, we, we kind of have a voice in our family w- that we would imagine our dog speaking in, and we kind of use that when we talk to him. You can become doggish in your interactions with your dog, but your dog will never be able to talk religion with you, right? In his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis wrote this about the incarnation, quote, we catch sight of a new key principle. The power of the higher just insofar as it is truly higher to come down. The power of the greater to include the less. Everywhere the great enters the little. Its power to do so is almost the test of its greatness. In the Christian story, God comes down. Down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. Down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover, end quote. It's the mark of greatness to be able to enter a lesser or even to become a lesser. When you are filled with joy, you can enter into the pain of someone who is filled with despondency. But when you are despondent, you can't enter into the joy of someone else, can you? As, as Lewis put it, the power of the great to enter the little is almost the test of its greatness. We can also look at it from the other end, from, from another angle. The, inbil- the inability of the lesser to enter into the greater, to become the greater in itself, is proof of its lack of greatness. Hitler could not understand Churchill the way Churchill could understand Hitler, because wisdom understands foolishness, goodness understands evil, but it doesn't work the same way going in the other direction. The selfless person knows how a selfish person thinks, but to the selfish person, the deeds of selflessness are largely incomprehensible. The incarnation is not a denial of the greatness of God. It is about the greatness of God, a revelation of the greatness of God, because we we know this intuitively that 
greatness is great in part because it can enter into and identify with and even take on the nature of the less, as Lewis put it. In Jesus, the greater has become the lesser without losing his greatness and, in fact, establishing his greatness. The most high has become the most low. God has become flesh. So God is higher than you thought. He's certainly higher than every other religion and every other thought form ever thought. For he can become human. God is higher than we thought, but it's also the case that we are lower than we thought. In Lewis's illustration there, the diver goes down into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Our rebellion against God is darker, and it's plunged us deeper into the mire than we ever could have imagined. The Most High God has to dive down. He had to dive down as far as he did into the ooze and slime and decay because that's how far we had sunk. Okay? He took on our fallen flesh. He he placed himself under our curse because that's where we were. That's where he found us. That's how low we were when he came to save us. And so if he was going to save us, that's how low he had to go. The gift that God gave humanity tells us a lot about God. But it also tells us a lot about ourselves. And some gifts, not all gifts, but some gifts kind of have a way of saying as much about the receiver as they do the giver. So, you know, if every Christmas your family members stuff your stocking with, with a year's supply of breath fresheners, for example, then uh, you might, it might tell you something about how low your breath has, has sunk. Maybe it's worse than you thought. Over the decades, uh, my wife has gotten me different calendars and planners and books, how to organize your day and, uh, or your office or the, you know, in the coming days and weeks and months. Uh, she's gifted me with filing systems, you know, just show up and then there's a filing system the next time I come to my office, something like that, uh, with her advice on how to structure things. Um, sometimes she'll gift me with her presence in my office on a date night to help me bring order uh, and, and sense to the chaos. And I appreciate these gifts because in this area, I, I, I am low, I am weak. She is greater in this area. And she has the gift that I am in need of. So I accept it most of the time. There's no way to accept certain gifts without recognizing that they say something about you, the receiver, right? Now, it's, it's sweet to think that God gave us his son, that he became a little boy in a manger for us. And it's wonderful 
to claim the promises that we read in Luke 1 about the kingdom that will never end, that it, that it leads to, that this, that this boy, that this baby will rule over this kingdom. But why did he have to do this? Why did he have to become this baby? Why did he have to become a crying, hungry child? Why did he have to dive down into the muck and mire, into the darkness and the decay? Why did, why did he have to give us this gift? It's because we were so bad off that nothing less than this gift, nothing less than the incarnation and death of God's Son could save us. So if he was going to save us, this is what he had to do. This is the gift that he had to give. The incarnation is the gospel. The most high has become the most low. And this reveals to us how high God is. He's higher and greater than you thought. It also reveals how low we are. We've sunk lower and we've become more sinful than we thought. You're worse off than you thought. That's just the truth. I am too. It, it's, you know, it's worse than you think, uh, even when you think it's really, really bad. <clears throat> You're needier than you ever realized. Your spiritual poverty is more severe than you can imagine. God is higher than you thought, and you are lower than you thought. And these two implications of the incarnation lead naturally to the third one, which is that God is more loving than you thought. God is more loving than you thought. In verse 32, Gabriel says that Mary is to call his name Jesus. Jesus means God saves, Yahweh saves. Jesus basically means Savior. The Most High became the Most Low to save us. The incarnation of the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, demonstrates God's love for you. For whatever reason, God decided to allow humanity to subject itself to futility, to groaning, to sorrows, and even to death. God allowed this. He, he wrote a story in which we suffer sadness and pain in this life, and eventually we die. Okay, that's... That's everyone's story. Nevertheless, God had the courage to take his own medicine. He entered into every bit of the mess that we created. Dorothy Sayers wrote, God can exact Nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has not exacted anything that he has not exacted from himself. It's impossible for him to do that at this point because he has done it. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, despair, defeat, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worth while. 
The most important clause there in that quote is, thought it well worthwhile to come and live and die in our skin. Well worth his while. This, that idea of the worthwhileness of the incarnation and death, suffering of Christ, it, it echoes the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's from Isaiah 53, 11. When you do something and afterward you say, you know, I'm satisfied. That was worthwhile. Uh, it was worth my time. I'm glad I did it. What I got was worth it. When you, when you say that, what you mean is that what you gained out of the deal is more valuable to you than what you lost. That's true with God and the gospel. The incarnation meant leaving the glory of heaven for the groaning of earth. And yet it was worth God's while to do it. Jesus looks at his sacrifice and concludes that the intense, unfathomable pain that it cost him was worth it. Why? It's because he got us out of the deal. That's why. If you, got, if you have a God who wouldn't or couldn't ever become human, if your God would never clothe himself with his creation, then the God you're imagining doesn't love you the way the God of the Bible loves you, the way he loves his people. At the end of the Lewis illustration there, the diver comes up with what he went down for. Do you notice that? And up again, back to the color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. The reason God came to get us is that we are precious to him. Child of God, you are precious to God. You are precious in his sight. The incarnation is evidence, proof that you're precious to God, that every child of God is precious to him. You were worthwhile to save. It was worth it to him. He was satisfied when he had, he had done it. Not because of anything in you, because of his great love for you, which is inexplicable. But that love has been poured out on you. He loves you with a love that you can't understand, a love that you can't explain, that you can only really just begin to receive. And it's a love that you long for. It's a love that you long for. There's only one person in the history of the world who can love you the way that you long to be loved, the way that you crave to be loved. And we need to recognize as humans that we do crave to be loved. We can't deny that. It's the way we were made. There's only one person in the history of the world 
who can love you the way that you crave to be loved. Your spouse can't do it. Your parents can't do it. Your friends can't do it. No, no family member or friend can come close. No mere human can do it. But God has done it. He has loved you with an uncreated, infinite love, which is the love that can satisfy you. It's meant to satisfy you. No, no human in your life can do it. In May of 1996, the year that I graduated high school, the month I graduated high school, a popular love song hit the airwaves and it eventually became number one on the charts. Uh, it, I guess it's a somewhat catchy song. Uh, you've probably heard it. I'm not going to sing it or anything. But the words aren't all that different from many of the other popular songs that have came before it and have come after it. The chorus says, I love you always, forever, near and far, closer, together. Everywhere I will be with you, everything I will do for you. And then, the, and then toward the end of the song, the, the, you know, the, the singing, she, she turns to her lover, um, and she says, she almost demands, say you'll love me, love me forever. Never stop, never whatever. Near and far and always and everywhere and everything. Now, these lyrics are obviously uh, sappy and soppy. They're not good poetry, and I'm not even sure that all the words are coherent, uh, at least not to me. Maybe. But, but, that's, but that's actually partly why I quoted this and, and why it illustrates the point or points that I'm wanting to make here. Now, the song claims to be looking for an eternal love, right? Forever, always. Uh, an eternal forever love is what this singer-songwriter wants. But ironically, it's trying, the, the song is trying to find it on earth in, in fellow human beings. And that kind of, that pretty much summarizes every one of us to some extent. Songs like this one express a craving. We can acknowledge that. Uh, a longing to be loved. But a longing, a craving that no other person on earth could ever satisfy. And it's a longing that we don't even really know how to articulate, how to think about. But God loves us even when we don't know what we're really looking for. No human in your life can love you always forever. Love you whatever. Uh, be with you everywhere and always do everything for you. And yet God knows that something like this, okay, we'll just call it something like this, is what we want more than anything. And God has given it to us. He's given us the real thing. Not, not exactly what we would say we want or how we would articulate it or how we would write poetry or songs about it, but he has given us it, the thing behind this. He's provided the real thing. 
So, you know, obviously, I want you to do better than this song in your formulations and prayers and in your expression of love. I want your view of your relationship with God uh, to, I don't want you to look at it through the lens of a, of a 90s saccharine love ba- ballad. But the point I'm wanting to make is that there's only one person in all of reality who can meet that deepest longing that you don't even know how to think about or articulate well. But you know is there. You know the whole is there. So if you, if you throw this sop at another human, you'll come up empty every time. Only one person can satisfy your desire to be loved perfectly. And that person, here, here's the good news, that person has loved perfectly. He has responded to your chief yearning and he has provided the solution. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is perfect, perfect, eternal, uncreated love become flesh. In the incarnation, divine love became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation is good news. It's the best news. It was the best thing Mary ever heard. It's the best thing any human has ever heard. The most high has become the most low. This means that God is greater than you thought. He's so great that he became human. It also means that you're lower than you, than you thought. You're more sinful than you know. You're not just a little bit broken. You're all the way and utterly destroyed. You don't just need help. You need total salvation. And all of this means that God loves you more than you thought. God is more loving than you thought. In Jesus, in Christ, God has done the most radically loving thing anyone could ever do. The greatest expression possible of love. He's become one of you and he's died for you. The Father's love for you compelled him to send Jesus to earth and the Son's love for you compelled him to take up his cross for your sins once and for all. And he has promised to love you forever. He has promised to love you whatever, uh, if, if that means that he's promised to love you in spite of your greatest sins. And he can do this. He can make this promise, and he can follow through on such a promise Because his grace is greater than your sin. No human can say those words to you and really mean it or follow through. Whatever you've done can be forgiven in Christ. He'll love you even if your idea of love has been corrupted by the world and has a lot of maturing to do. The incarnation reveals to us that God meets us where we are. Right? uh, that, that's exactly what God did in the incarnation. He, he met us where we are. 
Christ's love for you runs so deep. God's love for you in Christ runs so deep and it's so anchored in eternity and divine perfection that your immaturities and incompetence and shortcomings and sins don't even budget. Doesn't phase his love for his people. The love, the love of God for you in Christ It's either too good to be true or it's the most wonderful thing in all of reality. More wonderful than anything you've ever hoped for or desired or dreamed of. And the truth is, is that God's love for you in Christ is the most wonderful thing in all of reality. It is more wonderful, truly, than anything you've ever hoped for, longed for, desired, thought would be great. It's not what you were expecting. It's not what you were looking for. It's different and infinitely better. You'll never be able to explain it. But you can and you must believe it and receive it and treasure it in your heart the way Mary did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again and for the glorious promises in it, the riches, the truths, and we ask that you would plant them deep into our hearts, even now by your spirit, the same spirit who inspired them and who lives in us. We pray that these words would form us, shape us, lead us, convict us, encourage us, and that they would also help us by the working of your spirit alongside them to believe in the gospel, in the incarnation of the Son of the Most High, which was for us and for our salvation. Oh God, help us to treasure these truths in our hearts, even this week and this season of Advent as we lead up to the season of Christmas, as we read the scriptures having to do with the coming of our Savior. May we treasure all of this in a new way, in deeper ways than we have before. We need your help to do this, and so we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.